Ladies and Gentlemen, Kiries Kekiri, Welcome to the London School of Economics this evening. Kalos Ilstate, Stin Skoli Economiki, East London. Heili, Heili, Hoshamadid, the Madrasek de Sadaladan, the Heili Moftaharim, Heili Hosharim, Aziorate, Agayonage. Good. That's about it. This evening's event is a unique event, and I will explain in a minute how we're going to proceed. But first, I would like to ask the Director of the Relative Economics, Sir Howard Davis, to say a few words. Sir Howard. Well, thank you very much, Fred. I won't try to match your multilingual uh, skill. Uh, Fred also speaks English, by the way, but uh, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll find that out. Uh, but first of all, to uh, those of you who are here for the first time, welcome to our uh, great new home. Um, this uh, building was opened by Her Majesty the Queen on the 5th of November, um, and uh, we're rather proud of it. And it's a big investment uh, for us, which we decided to buy about four years ago and then spent the time doing it up uh, in what we hope is an interesting and exciting way. Uh, given what's happened to the property market, we could probably now buy it for about 55 pence, but uh, um, since we aim to occupy it for another 100 years or so, we're not worrying about that. Um, so, welcome. And this theatre is named in honour of uh, Sheikh Zayed of Abu Dhabi, was named by the Emirates Foundation, uh, with whom we've been doing some work on uh, the education system in Abu Dhabi, and we hope to be developing uh, a further relationship with them on Middle Eastern studies in the school. But we are here tonight to celebrate two of the other donations to this building, which made the whole thing possible, because these days you cannot produce an academic facility of this size and of this quality without support uh, from your alumni. And we were absolutely thrilled to get support uh, from Dimitris Paraskevas, who will say a word to you in a moment, um, who named the seventh floor of this building in honor of his father, Elias, uh, who is widely referred to as the Dean of Greek Lawyers. Uh, Dimitris is chair of the alumni in Greece and has done a huge amount for us in the Greek community. Had a fantastic event in Athens, which I think some of you were at a few years ago in the Zapeon with a thousand people for a debate, and has really been the most fantastic supporter of the school in Greece and animator of the activities there of the alumni. And as you will know, Greece is a very important country for us in terms of the uh, people we bring in from the school, from there, and students, and indeed a number of uh, our faculty, and a disproportionate number of our faculty uh, are Greek. I see Elias Mosialos there. I'm not going to fire you, Elias, don't worry, but um, we do have uh, a lot of uh, Greek connections in the school, and we are very pleased to maintain them, and Demetrius has done a huge amount to help us to do that. And uh, the other person you'll hear from uh, in a moment is Ali Rashidian, who uh, was also here doing international relationship. Demetrius, of course, was doing law. Uh, and 
was, uh, if you like, the shop steward uh, of the donors to the Persepolis floor, which is the fifth floor, which has the part of the Department of Management, but also has in it the new Climate Change Center, which we have launched here under Nick Stern, which is a big new research initiative for the LSE looking at the economics of climate change, and that is housed in the Persepolis floor. And Ali also, uh, in addition, of course, to contributing generously himself, was very good at uh, rallying the troops, uh, including a number of members, of course, of the Farman Farmayan family, and we're very grateful to all of those who contributed to the Persepolis floor. So they also decided, in order to mark that event, that they would um, have a party. Uh, I've discovered, knowing <coughs> Greeks, that you can't really have anything in Greece unless it's also a party. Um, and so, uh, but we hope to provide this evening uh, food uh, for the brain and as well as for the body. Uh, the brain bit um, is going to be Fred's responsibility, not mine, and we couldn't be in better hands than Fred, and we have a stellar panel here. Uh, but before we hand over to them, just uh, a few words from Demetrius and from Ali about the contributions that they have made. And where's Demetrius gone? There he is. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you, Howard. Your Excellencies, Lords, Ladies, Ladies and Gentlemen, dear Mother. Dustane Azize Irani. Haley Hosbachtam Esmabro Basoma Nigozaronim. I hope it means what I've been told it means. <laughs> It is a great privilege to be speaking in today's event and to be, which is not only about the Persepolis and the Hellenic Elias Paraskevas floors at the new academic building of the London School of Economics, the school where we studied. This event is not only about our school. This event is not only about Hellenic London School of Economics Alumni Association. This is not only about the memory of my father. This is not only about the memory of Persepolis. It is about values, the values of education, the values of learning, the values of understanding, the values of common process towards a common humanity. I would like to congratulate and thank Professor Fred Halliday, the speakers, the board of Hellenic London School of Economics Alumni Association, which I'm honored to chair, and each and everyone who has worked very hard for this evening to be the success it is with more than 500 people attending. I would like to thank Sir Howard Davis, Director of LSE, for his support here and a few years ago in Athens. I'd like to thank Mary Blair, the Director of Alumni Relationships. Uh, some people will say Mary is not as charming as Tony, but other people will say that she's more efficient than him. So I would like to thank for her efficiency and for the work we did together. I would like to thank Bill Abraham, also from the same office, who has been uh, uh, very supportive and worked very hard for this success. And uh, also I would like to thank very much uh, Justin Rose, who in reality worked day and night 
for this, uh, uh, for this event. I would like uh, also to thank John Gordon and Hannah Kay from Intelligence Squared, which the logo should have been here. It's a company which organizes events and, and um, helped us to organize this uh, panel. And I would li also like to thank uh, our office manager, Angela Marcoulis, from our firm, who helped very much with the organization. Clearly, a special thank is to our Persian partners, and obviously in particular to Ali Rasidian, who has been coordinating, coordinating this effort on their behalf. And at this stage, I will attempt a second uh, Persian saying. It's Kele Kosbaktem Ke Emshab Roba Shoma Megazoranim, which means we are delighted to be spending this evening with you. <laughs> Our distinguished guests, it is by now apparent that our world has changed and it is going to change even more dramatically than ever before. The Western world is not anymore what it used to be. It is a universal belief that we seem to be moving towards a new global reality with uncertain steps that include uncontrollable conflicts. These dramatic changes threaten the values by which we used to live our lives. Leading intellectuals fear that cultural, economic, and religious differences will widen and will lead to more instability around the world. In this changing environment, education should undoubtedly be the center of economic policymaking for the future. Today, we are celebrating the new academic building of this wonderful academic institution. We are celebrating the past of two great ancient civilizations, and hopefully we are celebrating the optimism that religious, cultural, and other differences can be set aside so that all nations can work, live, and thrive together, because we cannot afford to be divided. We need to partner and cooperate in order to protect our common security and advance our common humanity. I hope that all of you will support the efforts of this great school. I hope that you will support the efforts of any organization uh, that brings value to society and the world. And I would like to thank you very much for sharing these personal moments tonight with me. Thank you. Thank you, Howard and Dimitris, for those kind and generous words. It's particularly gratifying to hear them from a Greek. <laughs> Excellencies, my lords, ladies and gentlemen, on behalf of the donors to the Persepolis Law in this building, I too would like to wish you all a very warm welcome. This is a very special evening for all of us because, first of all, we're here to celebrate. Uh, secondly, the panel discussion focuses on important yet little discussed aspects of Greek and Iranian history. I'd like to begin by telling you briefly why we've named the floor in honor of Persepolis. Persepolis was the ancient capital of the Persian Empire, 
founded around 515 BC, it's widely recognized as a symbol of Iran's ancient civilization and cultural heritage and has been designated a World Heritage Site by UNESCO. The project to fund the Persepolis Law began amongst a group of Iranian alumni at the LSE, but was very quickly embraced by a wider section of the Iranian community here in the UK. It became our way of putting something back into the society in which we live and work. And what better way to achieve this than by donation to the furtherance of education in a world-class teaching center, which is also regarded as having the most internationally diversified student body in the world. After all, where else would you find an event hosted by Iranians and Greeks in a lecture theater donated by Arabs? <laughs> I'd like to extend our heartfelt thanks, first and foremost, to the LSE for creating such a magnificent teaching space in the heart of London and for giving us the opportunity of becoming a part of it. It must rank as one of the finest academic buildings of the 21st century. In particular, I'd like to thank Sir Howard Davis, Dr. Mary Blair, and Bill Abraham for their, tremendous, uh, for their willingness to accommodate our sometimes challenging requirements. Little did they realize what they were up against when they decided to let the Greeks and the Persians loose in this building. <laughs> I'd like to mention here that Mary Blair, who is headed the LSE's fundraising initiative, is set to retire shortly and will be missed by those of us who have had the pleasure of knowing her and of working with her. Our thanks also go to Professor Fred Halliday for agreeing to leave the sunnier climes of Barcelona to chair tonight's discussion and for his invaluable help and advice throughout. As many of you will know, Fred has been a passionate and prolific writer and commentator on Iranian affairs for over 40 years and has been a mentor to many Iranian and Greek students here at the LSE. And might take the opportunity also to thank the panelists, some of whom have traveled from afar to shed light on the relations between our two civilizations. I'd also like to thank the Persepolis donors in particular and the Iranian community in general who were very supportive of this project. A number of people gave freely of their time and advice in helping us to secure the funds. Notable amongst them is Dr. Ghaffar Farman Farmayan, who with his family has been an important benefactor and advisor. The outcome has been such that we are to use what's now an obsolete financial term, oversubscribed, and are now looking to use the balance of the funds for scholarship purposes. Our thanks also go to John Gordon and Hannah Kay of Intelligence Squared, whose legendary organizational skills were tested to the full in helping us bring this event to fruition. And last, but by no means least, a very special thanks to a dear friend, Dimitris Paraskevas, who is sponsoring this event with us. I cannot think of a better way for a son to honor his father's memory than to name a floor after him in a building such as this. And it was his boundless enthusiasm and energy that helped us focus on the job at hand in organizing tonight's event. Now, Dimitris is both Greek and a highly skilled lawyer, so I leave it to you to decide whether you wish to become his adversary or his friend this evening. 
And now to our Greek guest assembled here tonight, Kalo Sorisate Elines Filimas, Imaste Enthusias Menipu Mirasomaste Afti Tivradia Mazisas. I take it I said it better than Dimitri's pronounced question. <laughs> Thank you. May I say how honored and delighted we are to be sharing this event with you. What would Cyrus the Great and Alexander the Great have made of this gathering? Speaking of Alexander, for anyone thinking of following in his footsteps, we've been assured that this building is virtually fireproof. <laughs> and, and we've taken the added precaution of ensuring that the Persepolis floor is located beneath the Greek floor. <laughs> but in spite of any historic divisions that may have existed between our two ancient civilizations, and whatever the conclusions of tonight's discussion, we hope that at least in this gathering, ancient adversaries will become modern friends. I'd like to leave you, if I may, with a quote from one of our most famous poets, Sa'di, who lived and wrote in the 13th century. His words graced the entrance to the Hall of Nations in the United Nations building with this call for breaking all barriers. Human beings are members of a whole, in creation of one essence and soul. If one member is afflicted with pain, other members uneasy will remain. If you have no sympathy for human pain, the name of human you cannot retain. I now hand you over to Professor Halliday and the panelists, who I'm sure will enlighten us with their knowledge and wisdom. I thank you all very much for being here tonight. very much for the Eucharistor. We are here tonight to celebrate three things, as our speakers have already said. First of all, to thank Ali Rashidian and Dimitri Paraskevas for all their efforts on behalf of the school. When you work in the field of academic fundraising, you soon discover there are two types of donors, the talking and the giving. Uh, and the, they are givers. They got on with it. And for that, we're very, very grateful, and I'm sure the school is as a whole. I've had the pleasure of having quite a number of Greek colleagues and students, and of the more than 50 PhD students I've supervised, the largest single contingent came from Iran, no less than 15. Uh, sadly, most of them don't go back to their country or can't, uh, but I learned an immense amount from them, and on the 21st of March, Nuruz, which is also my son's birthday, uh, large quantities of very fresh pistachio nuts were generally <laughs> provided. I once had a student who brought them directly from Iran, and she said, my mother asked me to give them to you. and insisted I hand them to you in the bag, but I'm a bit ashamed to bring an English professor pistachio nuts. I said, why are you ashamed? She said, because when I was a little girl going to school in Shamiran, my mother would give to, give to the bus conductor or the bus driver on the occasion of Nuruz. <laughs> I said, Bibin Khanna, uh, my job is the same as the bus conductor's, to pick you up in one place and take you safely to another. And then <laughs> 
Of experiences of Greeks here, I won't mention one because it goes to the heart of this evening's discussion, the different uses of the past. With no disrespect to this wonderful building or to the new theater or the old theater, the most important place, the most historic place in Ellisee is a tiny little unheated bar, cafeteria, called Wright's Bar, just to the left of the main entrance. And I have met presidents of banks in Japan and ministers in Latin America who after they've had a few glasses of wine say, is Wright's Bar still open? This is the place. And more presidents and prime ministers have eaten there in their youth than in all the Ritzes and Four Seasons in the world. And one day I was in there having lunch, and I noticed the guy next to me, the way he was slightly unshaven and his raincoat, he was obviously a Greek. <laughs> so I, I got talking to him. Anyway, he gave me his card. He turned out to be a very wealthy man, a multimillionaire, owner of a shipping company. And his family were heroes of the War of Independence, and they'd had property in London since the 18th century. He said, I don't like going to the Savoy in these places. Everyone tries to, you know, I much prefer to come here. I can read the papers and I'm peace. So then I made a terrible mistake. I said, well, what part of Greece are you from? He said, oh, I'm from the island of Chios. And then I said, well, what happened in Chios? And he said, you call yourself a professor of a famous university, LSE, and you don't know what happened in Chios? I said, he said, Homer was born in Chios. How come you don't know that? I said, when I was in school and studied classics, A-level, Homer was born in Smyrna. And he looked at me, and then he said, my friend, Homer was born in six places, but don't tell the tourists. <laughs> the only Iranian story I can match was many years ago, uh, I was at a conference on Iran, and there was an Iranian businessman there, and he started in the lovely, you are very famous, I've read all your books, all my life I've been studying your books, and I said, look, Gushkon. Uh, you've obviously got a problem. He said, what's my problem? I said, you've got a son. He said, no, Aga, it's worse than that. I said, you've got a daughter. He said, no, it's worse than that. He said, it's me, Man Khodam. I want to come and study with you. <laughs> anyway, he came and that was... The issue of central to this meeting this evening is, as both speakers have said, a cultural one and one of great relevance to the world. If you ask me in the 25 years I've taught here, what, what real advances have we made in moral and political thinking? One of them is the, in, around the work of nations and identity, and particularly the work of the Indian Bengali writer Amartya Sen and his book, Identity and Destiny. Because what Sen says is we all need an identity, a country we came from, a mother's cooking, a flag, a feeling, a literature, a sense of humor, however much we travel, however much we talk. But this is not a destiny. We can choose which bits of the past we highlight and which bits of the past we don't. I mean, the English and the French can talk about their wars, or they can talk about their entente cordiale and all they've learned from each other. And the same goes for Greece and Persia. Yes, there was the invasion of Darius and the invasions of 480 and further wars, but Xenophon went to fight with Khosro, with Cyrus, uh, against uh, other uh, Persians. There was an enormous interaction of culture and literature. I mean, the word Odeon, for example, comes from Persian. The word paradise comes from Persian. And we'll hear later on about the influence on Greek art. Plato was fascinated by Persian philosophy and went to meet Persian philosophers. And so the history is also one of interaction and learning of two great historic peoples. And this brings me to my final point. We in this country owe an enormous amount of cultural and philosophical debt to Greece and to Persia. To Greece, we owe the language, the philosophy, the architecture, and much else besides. And it pains me when I hear in today's debate on the European Union that Europe must be defined by its Christian origins. 
Well, first of all, we live in a secular Europe. Uh, there, is a, there are Christian origins, but they can be interpreted in many different ways. But Europe has origins that go back before Christianity. The word democracy does not come from the Bible. It comes from Athens, and we should never forget that. And we owe that to the Greeks to thank them for that. And on the Persian side, the influence of Persia came through the British Empire, through India. After all, most Indian food is basically Persian food, tandoor, biryani. The Taj Mahal is just Persian architecture. Um, in the Muslim times, many of the foods, sugar, candy, apricots, all these things, many of these fruits came from Persia. But there's an older Persian influence, which is evident in this city, and I think sums up the proximity of ancient Persia to where we are tonight. The oldest place of worship in London is not a church, is not a synagogue, is not a Roman temple, is not a mosque. It is the temple of Mithras in Queen Victoria Street from the second century AD. A Persian temple built in what is now the city of London is the oldest place of worship. Now, what does this mean? It mean two things. Or I, I defer to the classical scholars. Either because the cult of Mithras was common among merchants in the Roman Empire, that the merchants in London, wherever they were from, all over the empire, were practicing this Persian cult, or more intriguingly, that London was garrisoned by Persian troops, sort of pastoran of the, of the Roman Empire, <laughs> uh, uh, for better or worse. If we, what is the most important cultural center in London? It has a Persian name. Barbican. Barbican is a corruption of Bob Khani, the gatehouse. And so the Persian influence in food, in literature, the whole influence of Persian storytelling on Chaucer and on subsequent English literature, we have an enormous debt to them as well. And let me conclude by saying also that in the current moral and political climate, and one this is particularly what I'm working on, comes of cosmopolitanism and internationalism, there are immense cultural resources from both traditions on which we should draw and can draw. In the case of Greeks and the Stoics, who founded the whole idea of cosmopolis and cosmopolitanism, and as Ali's very apt quote from Hafez and Saadi was pointing out, the cosmopolitanism of Persian poetry, uh, not just of Hafez and Saadi, but of course above all of Rumi, a Persian poet who is the most read poet in America today, is a medieval 11th century Persian poet, Jalaluddin Rumi, who is a mystical cosmopolitan. So we have much to celebrate and we shall proceed. The evening falls roughly into two parts. We have, first of all, two speakers on the classical past. Nigel Spivey, who is lecturer in classics from Emmanuel College, University of Cambridge, will speak first, and Sam Moorhead from the Department of Portable Antiquities from the British Museum. They will each speak for 10 or so minutes. Uh, the other members of the panel may want to comment. There will be room for a few questions, and we move on to the other three speakers. So without further ado, I will ask Nigel Spivey to take the floor. Thank you. Do we want the lights down, possibly? People have control of lights. You might be able to see this a bit better. The crucial thing is that I have enough light to see my watch because uh, 10 minutes is the um, time allotted and it's a big subject and my temptation would be to speak to you for at least um, an hour and a half on this in order to do justice to its many subtleties. Um, but if you will bear with a, uh, a brisk narrative, the point of this is to remind those of us who 
can't quite remember all the details of the ancient past. Um, what happened according, as it were, to the tradition uh, and to try and introduce some nuances which I think make this evening a particularly important one. The question, when does history start, is very easy to answer if you're a traditionalist and especially if you're a classicist, it must start with Herodotus, who was the uh, father of history, and it must start with where his histories start, the collision between Persia and Greece that took, part, took place pretty much, um, uh, if not in his day, then uh, at least in his um, very short memory. And it's worth bearing in mind that Herodotus technically comes from a part of the Persian Empire. Uh, does everyone remember where he came from? In ancient terms, it's Halicarnassus. In modern terms, it's Bodrum. And if I can reach that far, it's about there. Um, Herodotus moved around, as far as we can gather, with complete ease, spent a lot of time in Egypt, which was under Persian control, and there seems to be no problem about him doing that, which in itself, I think, is a very important thing. But he starts his narrative, eminently readable narrative, with a story of how Cyrus came into uh, contact, uh, aggressive contact, with a king of Lydia, Croesus, and Croesus, having consulted the oracle, Delphic Oracle, and being told he was going to destroy a great empire, launched into battle with Cyrus and of course what the oracle hadn't told him was that it was his, Croesus's empire that was due to be um, demolished by this act but what Herodotus gets stuck into is a narrative that I want to try and illustrate these points um, with a succession of images that uh, as it were symbolise the uh, historical processes here and polarise them as well this group of the so-called tyrannicides is in a sense very easy to take on board. We know that these represent the figures of two Athenians who launched an assassination attempt against the tyrants who were ruling their city. They partially succeeded. They murdered one of the tyrants but left the other one uh, unscathed. That other one went to the uh, Persian court and presumably the invasion of Darius was uh, intended, at least in part, to uh, restore this tyrant, whose name was Hippias, uh, to his position as a Persian satrap. Now, as soon as you start looking into this story, you learn that the reason that these two gentlemen uh, attacked the tyrants was not, in fact, to get rid of tyranny. Uh, so this is one problem about it uh, to begin with. We haven't got time to go into that, but... Uh, symbolically they retain this value as being the, um, uh, the arch progenitors of the process that brings us to democracy in Athens and very self-consciously so self-consciously that when it came to the first test of the democracy in Athens which was the battle of Marathon um, Herodotus gives a splendid account of this and I'm almost reluctant to summarise his account because um, one of my missions today is to get you going back and looking at just how Herodotus relates this story. He's often invoked as someone who is, uh, as it were, the um, 
the man who frames Greece versus Persia. And in fact, I think if you read between the lines of Herodotus, you realize that he was a much more, um, uh, had a much more modern and open approach than that. But his basic narrative is that in that bay, as painted by Edward Lear, and you get, get a much better view, I think, of the ancient situation of Marathon uh, on the coast of Attica, uh, than you would today. Imagine the Persian fleet um, beached up there, this extraordinary situation whereby um, 10,000 Athenians go up to this site uh, and see that there are um, something like 100,000 Persians. They've been led to this site by the surviving um, tyrant, Hippias, uh, and as I say, I think their intention is to march down on Athens it's a democratic thing, so they've got ten generals, and of course the ten generals can't agree amongst themselves. One of them prevails and suggests a completely crazy thing, which is to attack the Persians on the run um, with an infantry charge, which happens, and the result basically is that uh, image down in the right-hand corner. Um, 192 is the number given to the casualties on the Greek side, 6,000 plus on the Persian side. And it becomes this trope of uh, a democratic identity that oligoi prospolus, that the, the, the few who died at Marathon uh, were valued as um, almost as superhuman heroes who had sacrificed themselves on behalf of the many. And it's from this point onwards, really, that the, what I would call the demonization of the Persians um, occurs in Greek literature and, to a certain extent, in Greek art. Herodotus says it was the first time that Greeks had, had come close to close quarters um, to these Persians, and uh, up till then they'd been uh, treated as... Uh, almost like beings from another planet and he says that at the Battle of Marathon we realized they were human after all for all that they were got up in a, in a garb that um, he regarded as uh, bizarre and um, extremely frightening. The contrast that is made between the democracy that is defended at Marathon and what is monumentally celebrated at Persepolis which those of us who've been there know is one of the um, best preserved of all ancient uh, monuments despite Alexander's impact about which more in a moment. All I want to point out here is that it's symbolized in a very um, diametric way as Persepolis and those satellite um, cities created by the Persian uh, royalty become these centers of the worship of autocracy and of course you all know this autocrat claims powers from above as a legitimization and promulgates um, a number of rules which when you start looking at them uh, turn out to be extremely good rules to live by but that's not how the Greeks see it and the image that is given of the Persians by uh, Greek writers, especially by one of the Greeks who fought at the Battle of Marathon, uh, the playwright Aeschylus, who produced um, the, almost the archetypal orientalist image of the Persians, the Persi, is one that uh, is always trying to accentuate the Persians as a political ideology with which the Greeks have no sympathy at all. 
Is it quite as simple as that, um, however? Well, we know that historically the, uh, the strife between these two peoples did not end uh, at the Battle of Marathon. And, of course, ten years later, Xerxes was back, and the Acropolis of Athens was actually occupied by Xerxes and his troops. They did um, a considerable amount of damage to the fabric of the place, most of which, of course, had been um, set up by tyrants anyway. And it was left, according to the Greek historical record, in ruins until, after some sort of time lapse, we owe it to the vision and the dynamism of this character, Pericles, um, whose image, this bust, was what you could see as you went up to the um, gateways of the uh, Acropolis, and it was his initiative, and of course his initiative in tandem almost with one of the great sculptors of the classical age, who was Phidias, and you see this um, Victorian, but nevertheless, I think, very sympathetic representation of what it must have been like to uh, go up the scaffolding of the um, Parthenon and see the unveiling of uh, a particular part of that monumental decoration, the, the frieze of the Parthenon, which some people like to contrast with the friezes that were put up uh, in Persepolis and contrast the, um, the content of the friezes at Persepolis, which is, you know, a lot of it is about what the 29 or so uh, client kingdoms of the Persians were expected to do in return for being under the arch of the Persian Empire, which was to submit tribute to the great king. Uh, so if you came from Bactria, which had a great supply of um, good camels with double humps, as you see there, this was what you sent along. And as I say, people like to contrast this with the the vocabulary of images that is uh, paraded at the Parthenon on the Parthenon frieze as if the artists creating the Parthenon frieze were somehow enjoying the fruits of democracy um, and that the artists working for Darius and Xerxes and their um, successors were somehow dragooned into this. Of course, the great irony is that the Persians were actually proud to have hired Greek stonemasons to come and do some of the work at Persepolis and one of the reasons of course why Persepolis is such a great place to be in is because you're seeing what happens when a nomadic culture that is used to living in, in tents and very fine tents indeed uh, turns its vision to something more permanent a quantum jump and we are jumping very quickly um, for reasons of time to the battle of the Issus and uh, a later Darius turning away in some panic from the um, onrush of Alexander, whose name means that he's frightening to other men and who's gone into this battle without even bothering to wear a helmet. And we can see, of course, that he's got highlights in his hair uh, and... Um, <laughs> Already he is adopting the mannerisms of what he is going to become, the great king. So although he, he bills his conquest of Persia as an act of revenge, guess what he comes across uh, in Persepolis and what he takes some care um, to, as it were, rescue? The statue of the tyrant slayers, which had been um, taken away from Athens by Xerxes, 
uh, and installed in Persepolis as a trophy is recovered by Alexander. And you follow that storyline and you think, good old Alexander doing it all for democracy. But of course he's not. And we uh, are all, I think, aware that one of Alexander's great gifts as a conquering uh, general was to adopt local customs, marry off his officers to Persian wives, and in fact adopt so many of the um, traditions of the great king of Persia that, um, that included even the tradition of proskunesis, which was that if you went into the presence of Alexander, you must um, grovel with your face on the floor. So where does all this lead us? Well, what's left of Persepolis, of course, is um, worth going to see. And in a sense, the, um, the message of both Persepolis and the Acropolis is that both of these places belong to people who were very proud of what they were. And, of course, their collision, in a sense, was what helped to define them by opposition, but I don't want to leave you in a sense with um, such a monument, but rather with these images of um, the two, let's call them the patriarchs of Western academia, uh, Socrates on uh, the left and Plato on the right. Western, yes, but there are very few scholars, as Fred Halliday has already um, intimated, there are very few scholars who would deny a substantial Eastern contribution to Greek science and philosophy. Uh, and it's a truism, of course, that the most distinguished um, successor of these two, Aristotle, we wouldn't have the copious works of Aristotle unless they had not been uh, stewarded for us by scholars in the East. We could go on, we could talk about the pre-Socratics who are the uh, progenitors of modern scientific inquiry, most of whom, of course, were based technically in lands that fell um, in the uh, conspectus of the Persian Empire and who are, of course, regarded as transmitters of what Arnoldo Momigliano used to call alien wisdom, but alien wisdom that... Uh, was a fruitful reception uh, for the Greeks. And we're back to where we began with Herodotus. And let's, I think, because we're, um, I don't want to prick the mood of bonhomie on which this uh, event has started. Uh, and I think, in fact, a proper reading of Herodotus will tell us that um, when he describes the beginning of history as the collision of Greece and Persia, he's not talking about an ingrained ethnic fault line. There is xenophobia in Herodotus, but there is not racism, and there's a big difference between those two phenomena. And so those of us who regard academia as uh, one of the great vehicles and custodians of cross-cultural communication uh, and that one of our um, raison d'etre is precisely the battle against cultural chauvinism must regard this event as a cause indeed for great celebration and a reason, sounds like I'm preaching here, but all I'm saying is that Herodotus is worth reading and he hasn't really got the message that Greeks and Persians cannot get on. In fact, quite the opposite. Thank you.
tribute to the contemporary relevance of Herodotus and one echoed in the last book of the great Polish writer Richard Kapuscinski, uh, who wrote a book, book on Iran, of course, Ethiopia, many other countries, and whose last book was indeed called Travels with Herodotus, traveling the world and quoting Herodotus as he traveled. Uh, one of the lasting effects of a classical education is a meticulous, if not obsessive, interest in etymology. And, but I only learned yesterday the origin of the word history, because the word istor in ancient Greek does not mean someone who tells a story or who relates the past. It means somebody who knows how to organize information, who knows how to conduct research, and who combines knowledge with common sense, nyomi. And I think there could be no better representation of what LSE stands for in regard to the social sciences. Yes, we teach technical subjects of law and economics and so forth, but the underlying philosophy is that it's a combination of an academic formation with good judgment, including good moral judgment, that makes the social scientist and it makes the citizen of today. And in that sense, Herodotus, who was a moralist, as well as a narrator of events, and also a great traveler, uh, was an Eastor in the pro proper sense of the word. And if we had a, a, a category of posthumous honorary fellows, I would certainly propose Herodotus as one of them. Uh, our second speaker is Sam Moorhead, Department of Portable Antiquities. I won't ask if the Elgin Marbles are Portable Antiquities. Uh, and he's going to speak to us now. Sam. Thank you very much. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I first should say that I'm here because someone else isn't here, probably, and that is Sharok Ramzar, who is a, an Iranian scholar who worked with me on the exhibition at the British Museum three years ago on Persia, Forgotten Empire, which I'm sure some of you saw, which was very popular, and Sharok and I used to proverbially fight around the lunch table often over this very issue. So much of what I will say has come out of what Sharok and I used to discuss. I will start by saying that I first read about the Persian Wars when I was a ten-year-old schoolboy, and I read it in Latin, and I read it in a class from a very young relative of the Shah of Iran, as was then, in the early 1970s. And you might imagine what happened. The schoolmaster, coming from a, a very traditional British background, reckoned it would be quite fun to <coughs> cast this young Persian boy as Xerxes or any other Persian during the fights at Salamis and at Marathon. I then went on to my next school where I read Herodotus in the unedited version and it's a very different version from the edited versions that you get and finally I ended up at University in America in the year of the US hostage crisis in Tehran and so in that year I saw all sorts of other anger and humour directed towards the East as well and that time it was for real and what I came out of from these experiences with was an understanding that most people both sides of the Atlantic had very little understanding of Persian history and culture. Now, before I go any further, I should say that I have an enormous admiration for the Greek world itself. I love Greek culture. In fact, I've just written something on the Parthenon Frieze. Uh, I can be moved by Aristophanes. I can be moved by Euripides. I can be moved by the art of Phidias and Praxiteles. And so the Greek world is as far as I'm concerned, still as marvellous as ever. And I'm obviously, this evening, I've got to try and balance the two. Now, we have, in the past, tried to uh, appropriate the Greek world in the West. And I'm going to read you something. You mentioned the Elgin marbles. Sorry, the Parthenon marbles. Don't tell my bosses. They're Parthenon marbles. Um, this is what the British uh, select, Parliamentary Select Committee wrote about the marbles when they were going to be acquired by the British Museum in 1816. 
But if it be true, as we learn from history and experience, that free governments afford a soil most suitable to the production of human talent, to the maturing of the powers of the human mind, and the growth of every species of excellence, by opening to merit the prospect of reward and distinction, no country can be better adapted than our own, i.e. Britain, to afford an honourable asylum to these monuments of the school of Phidias and to the administration of Pericles, where, secure from further injury and degradation, they may receive the admiration and homage to which they are entitled and serve in return as models and examples to those who, by knowing how to revere and appreciate them, may learn to imitate and ultimately to rival them. Uh, Some of the British Museum standing up saying that it's probably dangerous, but uh, you get the gist. Basically, in 1816, there were people who believed that Britain was the next Greece or the next Athens. And we then have the, what I call the Creed of Athens, which is the funeral speech of Pericles uh, in 431, in the first year of the Peloponnesian War, in which he praises everything Athenian. And this has been picked up by the Western world as well. And I think it's the second most influential piece of writing after the Bible. And it led to, in the 19th century, almost muscular Christianity in Britain. And that played its final uh, field on the in the First World War, when you had many people there going with Christianity in one hand and the classics in the other. And so in the West, we've been heavily indoctrinated. Then we go on to consider the way that we also looked at Greece. We have the democracy, we have Socrates, and it's almost become the ancient existentialism. And I feel that we actually owe Greece an apology, because we've actually made Greece out in many ways to be something that Greece was not in the past. And we have to be very, very careful that we don't try and read our present uh, aspirations into past actions. And I want to quote the French historian Marc Bloch, uh, who was killed by the Gestapo in the Second World War, when he said, Whoever lacks the strength while seated at his desk to rid his mind of the virus of the present may readily permit its poison to infiltrate even a commentary of the Iliad. So we need to be very careful about looking at the present and reading it into the past. So we have Greece on this pedestal. It makes it much more difficult then to consider what many people have seen as Greece's enemy and protagonist, Persia, in a positive light. And I think if you go back to the Victorian period, you have to read for Persia the Ottoman Empire. And there's no doubt about it that even in some depictions of the ancient Persians in the 19th century, they were depicted as Ottoman Turks. And this even comes out in the way that Herodotus is used. Now, Nigel has talked about Herodotus. You have to read it in its entirety. I want to quote you a German scholar, Adolf Holm, writing in the 19th century. Now, he wrote, Xerxes inspected the heaps of dead, and when the corpse of Leonidas was shown him, ordered the head to be cut off and the body to be crucified. There was now nothing to prevent the advance of the Persian army. That's his piece. On to the next story. However, Herodotus wrote more than that. And what Herodotus then wrote... This, in my opinion, is the strongest evidence, there there is plenty more, that King Xerxes, while Leonidas was alive, felt fiercer anger against him than any other man. Had this not been so, he would never have committed this outrage upon his body. For normally the Persians, more than any other nation I know, honour men who distinguish themselves in war. And this is the classic problem we had in the 19th century, of Herodotus was cut up to suit a Western audience, and Persia was made out, I'm afraid, to be the villain of the piece in almost every story you will read. 
Now, more recently, we have the film The 300, or the f just called 300, which was a great, caused a great controversy. And the writer of the actual book wrote, I went to Greece and researched the story as much as I could, walked the battlefield and all of that, just put it all down. It took a lot of distillation of the general history, and I'm taking an awful lot of liberties with everything. But that's my job. If you want reality, catch a documentary. Well, I'm afraid that I believe that uh, artists have a, a moral responsibility when they're playing with history. Uh, just look at Braveheart. Braveheart probably did lead to Scottish devolution in the 1990s, but it's an absolute travesty of history. And I think that there is an immorality almost when you start to play with generally accepted historical facts. Certainly, I think it's very lazy. Um, so how do we reconcile Persia with the West in the 21st century? Uh, when I worked on this exhibition, I was able to work with Sharok and other people in Iran, and I was able to look at other sources. And I started to see the Persian Empire in a very different way than from what I had even at university. And I started to understand the concept of the Pax Persica, or the Pax Iranica, rather like the Pax Romanica, or what some people call the Pax Britannica. And this empire was comparable in size to the Roman Empire. I won't go for all the modern countries, all the way, though, from Afghanistan to Egypt up to Turkey. And also, if you look at the kings of Persia, there is an enlightenment which did not exist necessarily in the earlier kings of that region, the Assyrians. This is what one Assyrian inscription says. I killed, I burned, I slaughtered, I ravaged. Their heads and limbs I cut off. Their youths and maidens I burned to fire. Their cities I raised to the ground, and the inhabitants I impaled. Pretty nice stuff from the Assyrians. <laughs> now... The, the, the author of 300 should have actually used the Assyrians and not the Persians, but anyway. Um, however, in contrast, an inscription of Darius says, A great god is a Huromazda, who created this earth, who created the distant sky, who created man, who made Darius king over many, rules over many. Thus says King Darius, By the grace of a Huromazda, I was created as a friend of the just, as an enemy of the unjust. It is not my wish that the weak shall suffer injustice from the strong, neither the strong shall suffer injustice from the weak. What is just is my wish. Complete contrast. And we must actually remember uh, another inscription where he actually says, May Ahura Mazda protect the country from a hostile army, from famine, from the lie. And if you read Herodotus and other Persian sources, you know that every good Persian prince, as I'm sure all of you in the room here can do, can ride, use the bow, and tell the truth. So, this is very different. And telling the truth, those of you from Greece know that the greatest Greek hero of all, Odysseus, was not exactly known for telling the truth. Now, we'll come back to that later. Um, and you can contrast this with um, a democratic Athens, but I, I need to remind you that democratic Athens could be quite ruthless. And when the island of Milos was reduced in the Peloponnesian War, basically, Athens did say... Uh, at one stage, this is no fair fight with honour on one side and shame on the other. It is rather a question saving your lives and not resisting those who are far too strong for you. It is one of the most brutal episodes in ancient history, one of complete vindictiveness on the part of the Athenians against the Melians, Greek on Greek. Now, to return to Persia, we all know that Cyrus was to send the, the Israel, Israel or the Judean exiles back to Jerusalem and to rebuild 
the temple in Jerusalem. And this we in the West have to be very thankful for because this relayed the foundations of the Judeo-Christian culture that we now live in. Uh, Furthermore, the Sarah Cylinder, which some people claim as the first Bill of Rights, that's not entirely true. If you talk to Irvin Finkel at British Museum and you go and look at it in the exhibition on Babylon at the moment, you'll see that it isn't quite that, but it is about re-establishing gods who have been thrown out by a previous Babylonian regime. And it's, again, tolerance on the part of the Persian administration. And we also, as Nigel has hinted at, have to remember that many of the the Greek world were living in the Persian Empire and that one of the great wonders of the world, the mausoleum Halicarnassus, was actually built in that empire at the time. So uh, we have to remember that the Persian Empire was tolerant and that within it there were great events happening in Greek culture. Now, if we go back to the Persian king, he was a sacral king, a king who was basically living in harmony with his god, Ahura Mazda. And when I talked to Shorak about this and we visited Persepolis, Persepolis is this site that brings the, really the harmony of uh, the king and his world together with Ahura Mazda. And when you look at these sculptures there and compare them with the Assyrian sculptures of, earlier, uh, of uh, the earlier period, the, cult, the sculptures at Persepolis are timeless. They're not brutal in the same way. You have the king standing or seated on his throne being supported by everyone in the empire. You have that harmony. You have everyone in the empire bringing their tribute to the king. This is the center of the world. It's very different from Athens. It's very different from the talking shop at the assembly in Athens. It's much more of a regulated harmonious society but very hierarchical and I think that you can compare this in a way with the 1897 Diamond Jubilee of Queen Victoria in this country when you had all the peoples of empire coming to London to create this harmony supposed harmony because I'm not going to say that it was absolute harmony uh, with an imperial world but one thing I have to emphasize about the Persian empire like all empires is that when people step out of line you have to be brutal And this did happen in that empire as well. The Persian king had to be brutal in places like Egypt when people rebelled. We can never escape that fact. Now, um, how do I bring the two cultures closer? The the West has seen Persia as the enemy of Greece, uh, and Persia has been seen as a separate entity, as a threat to Western civilization. This is not true. If we look at the history of the Peloponnesian War and at the history afterwards, this is the time when Greece was fighting Greece, so to speak, Athens against Sparta, allies on both sides. This is when both sides started to try and bring the satraps of the western part of Turkey into play. And if you read your Thucydides, you will see this amazing interplay between the political leaders on both sides uh, and the satraps Tissaphernes and Pharnabasus in Asia Minor. And they're playing this game, and all of them are playing the same game. You don't, it doesn't matter if you're Greek or Persian. You've even got civil war in Persia at the time. And read that passage and you will see that it's a, a membrane between the two states. People are passing both ways. And then you can remember that when the two great protagonists who defeated the Persians in the Persian Wars, Themistocles and Pausanias, were expelled from their respective city-states, where did they go? They went to Persia. Themistocles even was given land to rule for the Persians in Magnesia and he learnt Persian. These are the stories which people tend to wish to ignore. So we then get to Alexander the Great, and I'm not going to um, say 
any more about actually what happened, other than what I think Alexander might have felt. I do believe that when Alexander conquered the empire and destroyed the previous regime, that there was an element of sadness. I think it's only when he destroyed Persia he realized what he actually had destroyed, and that's why, to a certain extent, he tried to rebuild it. And I think this is something we need to remember. I think Alexander actually conquered Persia because it was there to be conquered. I don't think he actually had any end game as such. And this is, I think, portrayed best um, by his attempt to bring the two sides together. And if any of you have been to Istanbul and the famous Alexander sarcophagus there, on the one side you have Alexander defeating the Persians, but go to the other side. You have Persians and Greeks together hunting in harmony. And I think this is the image he tried to bring. But alas, it was too late. So, these are two great cultures. In their day, they fought and interacted, creating two different legacies for us today. Like two competitive siblings, they might have had their differences. Without each other, the family would be incomplete. Today, we should not study ancient Greece and Persia in isolation or merely as antagonists. Neither should we take sides, especially along the lines of East and West. As the late Alexander Solzhenitsyn extolled graduating students of Harvard University in 1978, this deep manifold split between East and West bears the danger of manifold disaster for all of us, in accordance with the ancient truth that a kingdom, in this case our Earth, divided against itself cannot stand. So, I think we should thank our Maker that the great civilizations of Greece and Persia came into being. And in honor of these great cultures, we should metaphorically rise, raise not one glass, but two, one of Samian and one of Shiraz. I believe Herodotus was criticized for being Philobarbaros or Philobarbaros, and we are all, I hope, Philobarbaros here, friends of Persians and friends of the other culture. Uh, I think we'll move on now to the second group of speakers. Uh, as Ali said, I've had engagement with Iran for more than 40 years, and I distinguish between what I call the Iran Shanas, that's somebody who knows about Iran, Iran Paras, to somebody who loves Iran, in which I would include somebody who was a remote teacher but guide and just died, Peter Avery, uh, and the Iran Dus, someone who's not a Paras but a Dus, a friend of Iran, and I would put myself in that category. But part of being an Iran Dus is to have many Iranian friends, which is the most important of all the interactions. And it gives me great pleasure this evening to introduce one of them who I've known for many years, Baroness Afshar. Uh, who has recently been in Barcelona as well. Uh, I introduced her as the first Baroness to speak in our center, which was a great pleasure. Uh, she's now Professor of Politics at York. Befa Maid, Hanome Baronessa. Thank you very much for that lovely introduction. Um, I must say that, that it's a great privilege to speak at the LSE, uh, and really my sole claim to fame in terms of LSE was that I was introduced to the House on the same day as Nick Stern. And actually in the corridor before going in, we were both feeling the same level of trepidation, and we also found that we had a great deal in common. Uh, 
And I must say, great, I must say that the point made about the rallying power of Ali Rashidian is certainly true in my case, because not only he caught me completely unaware and more or less propelled me into saying I would come here, but also his power was so great that even though today there was a debate on foreign policy, in which actually I wanted to quote the very verse that Ali quoted earlier on, the fear of Ali's retribution brought me here, <laughs> and I did not speak at the house. Last, but by no means least, I must thank Fred. Uh, Fred and I do go a very long way back, as he said to me earlier, long before he was a professor and very long before I was a baroness. But actually, when I first came to this country, I had the good fortune of meeting Fred, and whether he wanted it or not, I appointed him as my mentor. And he did conduct me through the very difficult avenues of academia to which, with which I was not familiar. And I regret to say that I never gave him any pistachios either. So, Fred, I'm sorry about that. What I'd like to uh, talk about today is misconceptions and the constructions of misconceptions in terms of reality. And I'm very grateful to the two speakers before me, which actually demonstrated how very easy it is to misconstruct truth in the name of history. I might say that in my case, I'm very familiar with that. In fact, I, had, I was very lucky to meet uh, Naz Diba, with whom I went to primary school in Iran. And we both went to a French primary school. And a French primary school, we learned about French history. And of course, in all that we learned about French history, Napoleon was the great person, and the wars against Britain were always won. Well, the problem is that I then came to secondary school in the UK, uh, when suddenly Napoleon was the terrible baddie, and uh, he had lost all of the wars that were to be lost. And so very early in my life, I actually uh, developed a very healthy skepticism of history and what it tells us. And I actually feel that even when we live history, we are unable to understand it. And I cannot give you a better example than the continuing rows amongst Iranians about what caused the Iranian revolution. Uh, it still goes on 30 years on, and I think it will probably go on forever. Fred Erielon talked about identities and referred to Sam's idea that we have a right to choose our identities. Uh, in a recent conference with, where I actually disagreed with Amartya Sen, who is also another of my great mentors and for whom I have great admirations. But as Fred would say, I may have admirations, I don't have a lot of respect, and I can be incredibly difficult. And my argument with Amartya Sen is on the basis of his assumption that we can choose our identities and that we have the freedom of choice. And in that particular conference, uh, Bhikkhu Parikh and myself argued that actually we get given identities. And in some sense, my example of the history was about the way that we ascribed identities, not only to people, but to entire nations, and we build these ascribed identities, and we develop them and construct them into belief systems. Now, when we talk about having a choice of identities, 
we talk about having the fluidity, having the choice of actually being different people at the same place in different times. And I can, I can say that as a woman, uh, first of all, actually as an Iranian woman, I had the greatest battle about identities because I took a New Zealand husband in England and in the registry office, when I signed my name as Hale Afshar, I had this registrar leaning across, telling me, no, dear, you're not Mrs. Afshar. And I had to lean across in my usual fashion and say, no, dear, I'm Hale Afshar. So actually, hanging on to your identity is a very difficult problem because it goes against conventions, even if it doesn't go against the laws. And most women that I know work very easily with the fluidity of identities, the identity that they are born with, the identity that they're given to them by their husbands, the identity that they are given to them by their children, the identity that they have at work, and they move easily from being the grumpy mother to coming and being the kind teacher in the same day, at the, in, within the same uh, period of time. I didn't mean to turn anything off, so if I did, I apologize. <laughs> I'm hoping to shed light, not darkness. And, 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 <laughs> and so uh, there is, if you like, the, the Sen idea that we can choose our identities. However, it is very much harder to know what to do with an ascribed identity. And what I want to, and, and, and as we said, the identity, the ascribed identity of the enemy, which we just saw how has been given by one side to the other, this is not just a historical thing. This is not even just about the history books. This is about here and now. And I can tell you that before 9-11, I used to wake up every morning and I was quite comfortable with being both Persian and British, with being a mother and a teacher, with being all kinds of things. And in fact, with being exotic in York, where I lived, and being one of the packy blacks in, in, in Bradford, where I taught. So I was quite, com I mean, I was, I was accustomed to these variety of identities that were ascribed to me, and I could choose and act accordingly. What shook me in 9-11 was that I was ascribed the identity Muslim terrorist. And suddenly all my other identities disappeared under this ascribed identity. And this is where there was no choice. To this day, whenever I go to America, I know that I will be stopped at the borders because it says that I was born in Iran even though I left before the revolution. But the identity ascribed to me is inalienable. I don't have the choice to say to the immigration officer, excuse me, you know, I'm not a terrorist. And this, is, and, and, and this was actually, uh, this was uh, made all the worse by 7-7 uh, when we suddenly had British parliamentarians and British ministers standing up and telling Muslims to choose between the identity British or Muslim. And it is at this point that fluidity of identities cease, 
that choice in identity ceases and that we then have to accept, to adopt the ascribed identity that we have. And I think that if we understood the process of ascription of identities, we would understand a great deal more about the emergence of British terrorism in this country. If you're given no choice, if you're put in a tight frame, then all you can do is either conform, which I wasn't planning to do, or then spend your entire life on the barricades where I've always been, so I'm quite comfortable, fighting against the whole idea that somehow if you're a Muslim, you're a terrorist, and if you're a terrorist, you're not welcome in this country. I might say that I'm very pleased to say that in the British upper house at least, Muslim, Muslims in general, and I think Muslim women in particular, have actually been welcomed and accepted as part of the combination. This ascription of identity is not just lim limited to the enmity of one particular group within a country against another. As Muslim women, we also have experienced this in Iran. Because in Iran, the ascribed identity of Muslim woman was very different from the identities that many of us grew up with. And so I want to finish by, the, by talking about the internal problems that ascribed identity as defined particularly by Ayatollah Khomeini of Muslim women excluded Iranian women from almost all arena. His argument, which in an early article many years ago I compared very much to Hitler and Nazi ideas, was that women should stay at home and raise good children. Well, I must say that both my children and my husband would go on strike if they heard that, because they think the best thing for someone like me is to get out of the house and get out of their hair. Uh, and, and, but I think that, 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 that I, the, the thing that the Iranian women did for which I, um, I retain enormous admiration, was not go to the barricade, was to do the kind of conversations that we have seen could have been possible between the Persians and the Greeks. They have gone back to the Quran, and they have asked the Iranian government to deliver their Islamic rights. And what is magnificent is that over the past 30 years, we see this slow process of negotiation, slowly, very painfully, and definitely not as yet conclusively, but effectively, open the way so that we do have Shirin Abadi, who actually wins a Nobel Prize for her activities. And we do have women, Iranian women, as 26%, sorry, 56% of the students at Tehran University. In fact, I, I, I think now they're 63%. So that all of the doors that were closed were considered openable by steady, clear negotiation. What I think that we see here is that the Persians and the Greeks have managed very successfully to do the steady, 
clear negotiations. What I'm praying for is that finally the governments in the West begin some kind of steady negotiation with the Muslim world. Because if they don't, I think we are on the road to perdition. Thank you. I myself had an identity problem for many years. I mean, a, a, a Yorkshire father, an Irish mother, and the person who sold it for me, very much in the lines of these, was Winston Churchill. Because Churchill's mother was American, but he, and his father, of course, was a famous British politician. He said, I'm 50% American and 100% English. And I, and I like this, this, so one doesn't ask, it's what feels right. Mention was made of Shirin Ebadi, the, the Iranian human rights lawyer, and I have to say that one of my most moving occasions in Barcelona in recent years was to introduce her to a very packed meeting there in the Casa Asia, and also to discover, during the meeting, how many Iranians live in Barcelona, uh, even though one doesn't run into them in the academic world. One of the aspects of identity, of course, is ancestors, and at LSE you come across some strange uh, historic echoes. I once had a seminar with two students who claimed to be descendants of Genghis Khan. Um, I also had a PhD student who was a great-great-great-granddaughter of Fatali Shah, the Shah who signed the first Treaty of Friendship with Britain. And one day she was in my office, she got into an argument with another Iranian visitor. And then I said to him, Allah, this woman is a great-great-granddaughter of Fatali Shah. And he said, well, I'm also a great-great-grandson of Fatali Shah. <laughs> so on that basis, our next speaker comes from a distinguished family of nobles of the Tsarist Empire from Latvia. Uh, his ancestors were advisors and ministers of the Tsar, friends of Lord Palmerston in the 19th century, and he himself and his brother are very distinguished writers on 20th century Russia and international relations. Uh, Dominic Levin has written a major history of 20th century Russia. He, on, he's writing a life of the uh, history of the Romanovs, and above all, he has written the greatest and most inspiring comparative historical survey of empires. So without further ado, Dominic, the floor is yours. Uh, thank you very much, Fred. Uh, Fred rang me up from Barcelona and said, look, come along and talk to this uh, evening session we have about the Persians and the Greeks. I said to Fred, look, I know nothing about Iranian history. I know nothing about Persian Empire, or virtually nothing. Don't worry, don't worry, said Fred. Come along anyway. So there was a silence. I said, Fred, there's one thing on earth I know even less about uh, than ancient Persian history, and that's the ancient Greeks. Don't worry, don't worry, said Fred. Come along, come along, come along. So I said, Fred, you must be asking me along for my duty. Fred's very kind, very kind. Um, but there was a silence, so I realised it wasn't that either. So I said, do you want me to tell some jokes? He said, yes, you tell some jokes. Tell them how your family's linked to, to Greece and Iran. And that's all right, I suppose. You know, my family is a sort of white Russian, Latvian, German, Swedish, everything. I was born in Singapore. <laughs> my father was born in Germany. My mother's Irish and French. And she was born in India. My wife's Japanese. <laughs> the trouble is, there's nothing Greek and there's nothing Persian. <laughs> and I said this to Fred... He said, don't worry, don't worry, there must be something. So I thought, 
And I suppose there is something. One of my great uncles commanded a Russian battleship in the 1890s and ran it aground in Piraeus Harbour, blocked up the harbour for a week. I think that's our only contribution to Greek history. There is a connection with Iran. I had this splendid old great aunt, sister of my grandfather, who had been with the Russian army in Persia in 1915-16-17, where she fell in love with Yaks. She loved Yaks. She was convinced that Yaks spoke Russian. And when we were very small, we were brought up to be terribly polite little English boys and girls. My elder sister and brother and I went off to visit this aunt who'd married this English grandee. And every month she'd take us off to the zoo to, to say hello to the Yaks. And she had this whole tribe of English flunkies, one of whom was sent off to the local patisserie to buy chocolate eclairs and meringues and beautifully made uh, cucumber sandwiches. Not for us. Oh, no. No, no, no. You didn't want to spoil children. This was England of the 1950s. No, no, for the yaks. So off we would set, once a month, uh, and we would be lined up opposite the yak enclosure and would volley chocolate eclairs, meringues, and uh, cucumber sandwiches to the yaks, who, of course, went crazy. Uh, with excitement. They may not have spoken Russian, but they did know very well that this was their moment of the month when they got rather unusual food. So, of course, for me, a little six-year-old English boy, Iran had truly fabulous connotations. This was a country in which cows, which is how I understood yaks, were three times bigger than ordinary English cows, very furry, and ate nothing but chocolate eclairs and, and cucumber sandwiches. At which point, quite unlike other people who saw, you know, this struggle in ancient days of the wicked Iran, I thought of Iran as this fabulous imperial civilization, clearly rooted in the best of all principles with these huge animals, as I say, who were furry and ate chocolate eclairs. So I said to Fred, I'd come and tell the story. But Fred did also say that I was a professor um, and that therefore I needed to say something sensible about empires. So I suppose I'd better say something sensible about empires and democracy. The thing about empire is that in one sense it's dead. Uh, there's nowhere in the world which is a true empire by historical standards. On the other hand, of course, the core of empire is power, and power will never depart. Power will be with us forever. And power uh, not only is eternal, but is usually rather selfish. As to, you know, the basic idea which has come down over the millennia, really, since the Greeks and the Persians in ancient time, it is that the Greeks were the West, the Persians were the East, the Greeks therefore represented freedom and the Persians represented tyranny. The Greeks represented democracy and the Persians represented empire. As we all know, empire is a bad thing, democracy is a good thing, and therefore history is simple. It isn't, I think, quite that simple, really. If you look back over history, empire, including the Persian Empire, was often very tolerant. It was a great source of the movement of ideas over huge areas of the world. It was, to use a modern term, pluralistic. Nationalist democracy was very often the exact opposite. I think democracy and empire first really clashed in the modern world in late 19th century Austria. And in a sense, history, you know, Hitler was the true child of Austrian democracy, the true genius of uh, Austrian democracy. This got me thrown out of a meeting in Vienna, of course, when I once said that. <laughs> I'm good at these things. The, I remember making my great first speech at the Great Britain-USSR Association, deeply ambivalent organisation in the Cold War. The only thing they agreed on was, of course, disliking the Germans and how good it was that the British and the Russians had joined together in two world wars. So my first ever lecture there on how much better the world would have been if the Germans had won the First World War um, was not actually um, what was required. 
It is, though, true that if you look back at empire in the late 19th century, in many ways, the most civilized of empires was the Austrian one. It was the only empire of the time in which minorities, Jews, all sorts of minorities, uh, could actually get from the imperial authorities under the protection of the imperial law and the imperial courts, protection not just for their individual rights, but for their group rights as ethno-linguistic groups. They could, for instance, have guaranteed rights to have their children educated in their own languages. In many ways, it was a much juster empire, not just than Russia of the pogrom, but also of the most democratic societies of that day, which were the white Anglo-Saxon colonies and the United States. You could not have imagined the Ku Klux Klan in Imperial Austria. It is the origin of what is now pompously called by academics consociational democracy. In other words, civilized principles whereby different ethnic groups can live together in a single polity. I don't need to tell you that that is extremely important even in the contemporary first world. It is even more important in Asia, the world of the future, whose largest societies are much closer to being the children of empire than they are ethno-national democracies in European sense. And by that I mean China, by that I mean Iran, by that I mean India, by that I mean Indonesia. If 21st century Asia goes the way of 19th and 20th century Europe towards ethno-national so-called democracy, we will all be dead because the world will not survive the conflicts that that will entail. The trouble, of course, about consociational democracy in imperial Austria was that it worked very well because it was very consociational and not at all democratic. In the end, sovereignty belonged to the emperor, the police, the army, even the bureaucracy were loyal to him, and if in the end, as quite often happened, the various national contingents literally dismantled the parliament and threw the benches at each other, in the end, life went on. Well, you can say that I am a product of my class prejudices, but I think imperial Austria is a memory of how empire, you know, even in the modern world, had its advantages. And after all, when empire collapsed, the collapse of the Austrian empire was the source of two world wars, and the two great diaspora peoples of the Austrian Empire, the Jews and the Austrian Germans, one was exterminated and the other was ethnically cleansed on a grand scale. So again, the end of empire is not necessarily the most pleasant of affairs. Are democracies kinder to outsiders than other kind of polities? I'm not sure. I think they're kinder to their own citizens, but that's a rather different matter. If you read particularly British, but European correspondence about the United States in the 19th century, for most of the 19th century, I think you will look very hard to find the idea that democratic America was a particularly stable or peaceable neighbor. It wasn't. Now, if we could turn the whole of contemporary international relations into the European Union or the United States' relations with Canada, that would be a lovely thing. And it is a very good idea. It is something to which we might hope for in the future. But if we look back on where democracy came from, and if we look back at the American Civil War, and if we look back at the wars with America's neighbors in the 19th century, and why pick on America? I could find many other examples. I think, you know, we would need to take a more detached view 
and worry about how democracy reaches the stage which it has now reached in the European Union and in North America. Will China be a more stable, a more peaceable great power if it evolves from an authoritarian ex-communist regime towards a more democratic regime? Maybe. But I wouldn't take it for granted because the first stage on the path to democracy tends to be a pretty raucous version of nationalism if either English or American history is anything to go by. Certainly, I think, the sorts of debates which emerge from ancient days, ancient Persia, ancient Greece, democracy, if you like, against empire, power against power, those arguments, those problems are by no means passed in the world that we live in and perhaps even less in the world that our children are going to live in in the next generation. These issues still do count, and to put things in gloomy fashion, they might well kill us all. Thank you.